back in Matthew chapter 10 this morning, continue to talk about some, some aspects of evangelism that we tend to overlook. And I'm going to be reading a larger chunk than just Matthew 10, 24 and 25. I'm going to start back in verse 16. And well, I'll just read it. So Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. Behold, this is Jesus talking. Behold, I am sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. So wise as servants, innocent as Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, or what you are to say. But what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and slave like his master. If they have called the master of the house the elder, how much more those in his household? So have no fear, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all up there. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but soul. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray this Father, you are in many ways very surprising in what you do. And here this morning we have one of the most difficult texts, in my opinion, in the entire description. So we ask that it be good for us this morning, helpful to us this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son. 
it's it's funny how, how scripture is used by people through the years. Uh, Matthew 10, we read it, it, it's one of the places that Calvinists, Reformed folk, people who believe in the idea of predestination, the sovereignty of God, often go to make the point, which is in here, that a sparrow, a little tiny bird flooding through the air, cannot fall unless the Father heaven wills it. So we'll often point to this verse as proof that God is in control of all things, even the tiniest little bit. And that is true. But what we often miss is the entire context of the point of the fact that God is taking care of a tiny little sparrow. And it's in the midst of one of the most difficult passages in my opinion in Scripture. This whole context of being hated for Christ by the people who are closest to you is really unpleasant. It's not good. I mean, if you had to write down what the most challenging thing about faith would be, this has to be in your top five. Belief is hard? Yes. Persecution from outside is hard? Yes. Your own child? Your own father? Your own mother? Putting you to death over your faith? I don't know if I can think of anything harder or more difficult in the entirety of Scripture. And yet, Jesus does not back down from it. This isn't even the only passage that he references this kind of thing. That he has the guy who comes to him and says, I'm going to follow after you. He says, well, come. And the guy says, hey, I'm going to bury my father. He says, listen, a dead buried the dead. You're coming after me. You lay it down. You're coming right now. And here, much more intense. Much more. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And what is that sword? Is it a physical sword? No. It is a sword that divides families. I mean, literally, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But I had come to set man against his father, the daughter against her mother. It does not get any more difficult. Earlier in the chapter where I was reading, Jesus is giving instructions to the apostles as they're about to go um, be sent out and into different cities to proclaim the gospel. He says, you're going to get drugged before courts, and you're going to get beaten and flogged. Um, and then after he says this, um, don't have any fear of them. Don't fear the ones who can kill the body. And I used to think this was the most frightening thing about Christian faith. You know, you have you know, a famously Fox's Book of Martyrs details the first millennia of Christian martyrs that have come to talks about the apostles and how all of them died, and a whole bunch of other martyrs through the years. And the question is always like, what would you say when the gun is pointed to your head? You know, will you confess Christ or will you deny Christ? And I remember when I was growing up, Columbine happened. I forget what year that was. 1990? Something like that. What was it? 95. 95. Okay. So one of the girls who died was the granddaughter of my piano teacher. So it was pretty close to our town. Pretty close to me. Mrs. Um, Secker was my and her granddaughter is the one that the, the movie, the book version about. I forget the granddaughter's name. Uh, 
one who, like the old movie and the book were written about, she was the one who like claimed Christ and then they got shot in the cafeteria for doing so. So I had this like in my head as a 12 year old, just my granddaughter, my, my teacher's granddaughter was the one who had to do this. And I just said, man, I, will, I, will I confess Christ? Will I actually stand up? And then I read around the same time, just shortly after all the Left Behind series, you know, this whole thing about you know, what's it going to be like are you going to confess Christ or not? Boy, I just thought that was like easily the hardest thing in the Christian faith. You're going to be martyred. Jesus says you might be martyred by your own family, your own father, your own mother, your own child. And now that I've gotten a little bit older, added a couple decades on to life, I, you know, it is frightening to think what, what would it be like if you were actually put into a room and said, confess Christ and die. You know, that's tough. That's hard. I don't want to be in that position ever. And I think that's pretty far down the list from the southern languages. You will be hated by them. They will despise you. They will speak ill of you. They will not be your friends. That is much, much worse. And it's difficult, right? Because the one is actual physical taking of life, right? Gun to your head, crucifixion of impending. You're going to be impaled on a stake. It's very direct, very intense. But it's for a moment, right? It's for a moment. This other one, the hatred of your family, the hatred of your friends, those who are closest to you, will tell you not. They will hate you for decades. They despise you for decades. So a few questions from us. And these are hard questions. These are not um, soft and defensive answers. Does anyone in your family hate you? For Christ's sake. Not in the history of the church. Lots of people that I know don't like me because I'm kind of blunt and to a fault. It's not pleasant sometimes to be that way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about did you fight with your sister 20 years ago about something. I'm saying, does your family, someone in your family, hate you? Because you've actually become a stink to them love for Christ. And that's a hard question. Because underneath that is the assumption that if you do have someone in your family that hates you, you have failed. And that's really what we're going to talk about. That the goal of the Christian life is to be liked by everybody all the time without exception that if you actually have made someone angry at you for saying the name of Jesus you must have just said it done it wrong been wrong and you live with this guilt and shame and fear all the time and if that's just not truth all of your history, not just right at the time of Christ, but all of your God's history of his people, those who are faithful are hated by those who are not. And 
they're hated by their family. Those close to them. Think through, right? So immediately, immediately, even before Cain and Abel, right? The faithlessness of Adam to blame his wife Eve is this sort of thing. It's faithless to do this. And he does it immediately. He, he shifts off the reality of the faith, which is to accept blame for something he did, and hates his wife in the meantime. Now, she doesn't do any better and shifts blame, too. But in that moment, he's doing the thing. He's saying, basically, I don't want to deal with the consequence of sin. I'm going to put it on somebody else. I'm going to hate that person. And then their son and their other son, their son Cain, despises his brother to the point of actually murdering him. Really, truly. Because God was pleased with Abel and God with Cain. And then on through, you can watch watch it happen, right? So uh, Jacob and Esau, the despisement of Esau towards his brother. We tend to think of uh, what happened with Esau's, you know, we read Romans 9, says Esau sought the blessing with tears that was not given to him. But he wanted the blessing without the birthright. He didn't ask for the birthright back. He wasn't crying because he didn't get the birthright. He just wanted the blessing of his father. He wanted all the good stuff without any of the stuff required of him by having the birthright. And so Esau's repentance was two-faced. It was with tears, but it wasn't full, which is why he didn't actually get it. He had no faith. And he despised his brother to the point where he was going to murder his brother. And so Jacob flees, runs away, comes back years, decades, a couple decades later. And then you have Moses leading the children out of Egypt. They're in the desert. The doom rises up against them at one point. Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, they say, escape 
the same sort of thing in our families. But there won't be any animosity towards us. If we can just handle ourselves right, if we say the right things, if we never, then everyone will love us and, and we'll be faithful to And really what that does is it betrays this truth that why I believe that we think we would never say this. We would never say this. You would never write this down. But this is actually what's going on. We think if we were in Jesus' shoes, that we could have navigated the climate and we wouldn't have been crucified. Everybody would have loved us. After all, Jesus was God and did a lot of great things. He must have just mishandled something somewhere to make everybody get that bad. Because, listen, nobody's been that bad at me ever. The problem is we have flipped it and thought it's good to never have anyone mad at us. That we have actually succeeded in the Christian life if we have no enemies. Especially if we have no enemies who are close. We have succeeded. And yet scripture over and over and over and over and over and over again talks about enemies all the time. And not just spiritual enemies, right? We always want to spiritualize it. Yeah, yeah, Satan and his demons are enemies. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and dark places. But the way most of the time the principalities and powers actually battle us is not like in our dream state. It's through actual enemies who are physically present with us. It's actual people. Now, we don't battle against the guy in front of us. We actually are battling the spirits behind him. But there's always a front man. There's always a Goliath. There's always someone who opposes God who is in our path. And that is where the spiritual battle is. Are we going to have faith to slain the stone, or are we going to cower in fear like Saul? Appeasement is the way we think everything should go. And yet God is clear the gospel cannot be appeased. It must not be appeased. And if we don't have enemies, we're probably doing it wrong. That's weird. That's, that's weird. But look through Scripture. right? So I read from Psalm 31 this morning. And if you were paying attention to the part of it, uh, it was long, right? Not going to deny it was a longer song. These are themes that are not just in Psalm 31. You can open the many songs in front of this. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach. I have become forgotten like one who is dead. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. You have not delivered me from the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet on a broad place. How, how prominent is this theme? I mean, one of the most famous modern psalms is Psalm 139. You might not know it's Psalm 139, but, uh, but it's this verse. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you to my, because I'm fearfully wonderful. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, which I was made, which when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If you would count them, they are more than a sin. I wait that I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay me, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way. And lead me in the way everlasting. We don't ever read naturally like the psalm. We always stop short when the psalms get gratuitous, enemy-filled. God judging the earth filled. And yet that's about half of the Psalms. You have to just pull out huge chunks of the Psalms. Individual Psalms, the whole of the Psalms. Why is that? Why, why is that such a prominent theme in the songs and the prayers of God's people? It's because they actually had enemies. People who actually wanted to kill them. Who did not like them. Who would not actually come to dinner with Who would not come to the family because they hate the God. They hate the fact that you talk about it. Except we don't talk about it. Now, the objection that you might have is that these were words that were written to the apostles, not to us. These were written to the twelve when they were about to be sent out. A sheep among wolves. But if you take the whole context of Scripture, it's actually all of us. We are the sheep among wolves. They're everywhere. They're not polite wolves. They are malicious wolves. They want to eat sheep. That is their meal. That's what they're aiming for. And we are the sheep of his passion. So then, I think I've stated it as bluntly as I can. We have a, a problem. We don't like to think that we should have enemies. And so we avoid them at all costs. We do anything we can. We avoid saying whatever we think will be the offensive thing. So that people who don't like us. It's true in all kinds of relationships. One of my best friends from college, who I love very dearly, even now, even though he hates my guts, wouldn't talk to me if you handed him a phone or me on the other end of the phone. I saw him about two, three years ago at a funeral of another friend of ours, mother who died of cancer, and I gave him a hug. That's his response. He hates him. Hates him. Why hates him? And he's one of the few friends, in fact, the only friend that Sarah and I have stayed in at home, and our kids manage He's the only friend of mine from college. I think the only friend at all, other than when we moved to Bloomington, that we've 
ever stayed at one of our friends' houses. And we did it a couple of different times. And then some things happened about five years ago. We got tangled up in some sin that we've been repenting of for a long time. And I asked him some questions about that sin. And about the Savior that we tried to follow. There is no more virtue. And unless he repents for the things he's doing, he will never talk to me. And I don't know of anything that hurts worse than that. I would gladly give up if I tried and have to endure that. And the only thing that makes it bearable is that we don't have to see each other. We don't actually have to run into each other at the grocery store. We don't actually have to deal with the fact that we're in the same family and get invited to the same family events because we're from different families. That's the only thing that makes that better. Now take it closer, right? Any of us have the faith to say the things that need to be said, not to offend the God, not to offend your brother, not to offend your sister, not to make your mom mad, just for the sake of being mean and nasty. Because we all know how to push our siblings' buttons. We all know the thing that will make them go off. We all know that if I say this about Trump, if I say this about Biden, that's going to go. Don't make yourself a stink, just to make a stink. But we also all know the thing about God that we cannot utter. And if we utter it, it will end things. And that's the thing. That's actually the thing. That we must have faith for. And it's very, very difficult. I started in my prayer, and before I spoke about this passage, this is the most difficult thing. It ends with whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus this was tough. Jesus knew this was hard. He called it walking on the cross. So think back, you know, put yourself 2,000 years ago, you're living in Rome. If you got up in the morning and picked up a cross, how was your day going to end? Was it going to be a good ending for you? No, you could not. If not that day, then the next. You were going to hang on the cross until you were dead. If you got up in the morning and your job was to lift a cross onto your shoulder, death was your end. You knew how it was going to go. It would not be pleasant nor easy. And you would have to bury your cross to the hill. Or they would just take you up onto it and you would die. And so you went somewhat willingly because to not go willingly meant to be beaten. But unwillingly in that you didn't want to go to your death you would march as the whip's tracked to your death. But now, that's how it ends. The middle is very difficult. Do we have any, any hope? Well, we don't have hope in ourselves, that's for sure. None of us has the sort of faith that can 
teacher. And so we need help. We need help to do this. And we should do this. We should go out of our way to make enemies, but we should not go out of our way to avoid them. And so then this is from Hebrews chapter 12. It's a weird way to think about it. Again, this is Consider him, so consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We tend to think of this passage talking about not resisting sin to the point of shedding blood as something tangible like, you know, you have to protect yourself from eating the chocolate bar. You haven't actually chopped your hand off to avoid it. Or you haven't actually done the physical demands of whatever sin plagues your life. Um, you know, if you're a gossip, you haven't pulled the phone out of the wall. You haven't bled yet. We tend to think of it in those sorts of terms. But think of it in this sort of sin where we have studiously avoided making anyone angry at us about Jesus by just kind of not saying anything about Jesus. Jesus was faithful in everything, perfectly righteous, without a mistake of sin in his life. Never. He never misspoke. He didn't say the wrong thing. He didn't accidentally call the Pharisees a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs and the sons of Satan. It wasn't accidental. He didn't take it back later. He didn't say, my bad, I shouldn't have said that about you. And it killed him. Hostile. With hostility. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here, this particular sin, no, it's me. We have not resisted the sin of people pleasing amongst our family. We have all, all of us, Curved our tongue, when we know the truth, we have not said the thing that should have been said because we don't want to make them angry. And we think that if they get angry about this, Jesus, then we have failed. The reality is, this is the only thing, the only thing we should ever make someone angry about. We should not make somebody angry about which chair they sit in at the supper table, right? If they want to sit in that chair and you're fighting over it, give them the chair, right? We should not make someone angry about what car they drive. We should not make someone angry about what house they live in or what street they live on or whatever the thing is that you and your siblings and your parents fight about. How they spend their money, what they do here. You are not there to make an enemy just to make an enemy. The only enemy that you should aim to make is one who will not come to the Lord's table. 
we should make that abundantly clear. Here is the matter of faith, where you have been faithless and you need to be faithful. Here is Christ crucified, and you have destroyed him, whatever you did. That is the dividing line. That is where you need to be willing to lose blood on it. To actually resist the sin of being a people pleaser and growing faint-hearted and weak, and instead Ask God to give you courage to say to your brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, if you do this, you will die. I don't often say it as bluntly as I have this morning. But I've I don't like this passage of scripture personally. It's very difficult to believe that this to be true. It's very difficult to think that Christ did come with a sword. It's divisive. my own lack of faith that God could get glory in a way that I don't understand. But we have to trust him that this is actually a good thing. So yeah, we're not going to fight someone over if they want a candy bar this weekend or not. Or if they come to Christianity store. What we're aiming to do Proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and friends. And that's easy to do, because we don't know about that. But I want us to think what actually it might cost us in the long run if we're to be amongst those who we love dearly. Do we have to see? And deal with it daily reunions and young weekends and during the week. Do we have faith in this? Do we have faith in Jesus opens this passage up by saying, No one is above his master. Slave is not above his master. Sorry, that's another whole passage. And that we are supposed to be like the master. He is the master of the house. And we are members of his household. So we ought to do it. And we ought not to be surprised at the outcome. And so we take faith, we take stock. This is actually the way. And when we proclaim the gospel, when we're faithful as Christ was faithful, that we will be hated. We will have enemies. They will be physically real. There will be spiritual truths behind those enemies, but there will actually be real presentations of those spiritual and if we don't have them, which is most of us, including me, I don't have very many enemies. There's not like I can spend a whole hour naming the people who are my enemies. And I probably should have more. There should be more enemies. 
when I don't have an enemy, it's probably because I have failures. Weak, faint-hearted. So strengthen your weak knees, lift your drooping hands, trust in the God who did not tell us this, but we're not for our good. And this sermon is, most sermons are to me, this sermon, I did not think about very many of you in preparing for this sermon. I have thought about a lot of people in my own life, and a lot of relationships, and a lot of things that I have not said or done, and I have not picked up my cross. And I urge you to think about you find the places where your cross is just laying there where you left it, refused to pick it up, thought it would be a bad day for you, and a bad week, and a bad decade. Pick it up and suffer the consequences for Christ. Because the end of this, right, the end of the suffering of Christ, the death of the Son of God on the cross was what? The salvation of the Salvation of the world. There's a, a quote, and it's been variously attributed to a ton of different people, but it's the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. If you pick up your cross, the church will be built as you lay down your life. As you give it up, you will gain not only your life, but the life of those around you. So let's pray this morning. Sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. And we'll see if any of us can feel these words without feeling quite a bit of remorse while we sing. So let's stand as I pray and we'll sing number 602. Father, we are very grateful for your son Jesus, who is the perfect example of being absolutely faithful to come his cross and to march without going to the left or the right to say the exact things that he needed to say to the exact people he needed to say them to. And at the end result of that is the hostile crucifixion of the Son of God. Father, we do not know the hostility of perfect obedience, but we have felt the sting of imperfect obedience and hostility that comes from it. And we are weary and hearted to continue on the road with our crosses. But give us faith, Father. Help us to pick them up. Help us to be ready to die so that your gospel may be heard and be known in the world. And Father, give us courage and strength. See our weakness and have pity on us and help us. We pray, Father, that we would not make enemies just for the sake of enemies, but we would be willing to endure the insults of enemies as